morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, and we're continuing our series from the book of Romans, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, and we're going to be looking at verses 14 through 17 this morning, and we're going to be doing a little bit of review, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, we'll get to verses 14 through 17 in just a moment. Can we pray together? Lord, I'm asking this morning that you'd help me to share your word. Thank you for these people. Thank you, God. Thank you for working in our lives. This past week, we saw your tender hand of mercy so many different ways. Whether or not we're on the mountaintop or in the valley, Lord, I, I pray uh, that you would continue to work in our lives. We have, you have free access to us, we tell you this morning. In Jesus' name again we pray, amen. I, I remember hearing recently about a pastor, and this pastor was all fired up, man. He was really passionate, and he said... He said this, he said, if, if I had all the beer in the world, I would throw it into the river. And then he said, if I had all the wine in the world, I would throw it in the river. And with even more passion, he said, if I had all the whiskey in the world, I would throw it into the river. He sat down, and the song leader stepped up and said, for our closing hymn, hymn number 365, Shall we gather at the river? <laughs> uh, I, I want you to laugh a little bit this morning because we're going to be talking about some stuff that's kind of serious that we've been talking about the last couple of weeks. But we should laugh uh, openly and we should laugh frequently because life is full of problems, especially relationship problems. Have you noticed in today's world that people are having a difficult time getting along with one another? Husbands and wives are having problems, employee and employers and, and uh, people and, and, and families and, and even sometimes in the church family. Now, in response to all this stuff, what are we going to do? Are we going to stop, you know, if we have problems with somebody in the church? Are we going to stop going to church? Are we going to stop... Start hopping from church to church, trying to find the perfect church or, uh, you know, or, or looking for that right situation. The, the Apostle Paul never did any of these things. He never did any of these things. And in fact, he believed in the church so much that he often said on, on a number of occasions that we're to treat one another in a Christian way. He had hope for the church and he had hope for people that they would come to the place where they would treat one another in a godly way, that they would go the extra mile like we've been talking about, that they'd be able to turn the other cheek, they would, they would be able to show compassion for people that are different, that have idiosyncratic ways to, to resolve within themselves to treat people uh, who you disagree with, uh, again, in a loving and gracious way. This is what Paul indicates. And it comes and it reaches a crescendo in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 when he says, Love is patient, 
Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not arrogant. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres. In chapter 4, let's review just a little bit, specifically the first part. We talked about this last week. He talks about how to treat spiritual leaders, and then later on we'll see how spiritual leaders are to treat the flock. Let's just review where where we've been at the last couple of weeks. Um, In verses 1 through 5 of chapter 4, Paul tells us that we must not be too quick to judge other people. We must not be too quick to judge other people. And in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 4, he talks about three judgments. First of all, he says there's the judgment of man. We all know about a human court. We all know that what that's all about, the judgment of man. Then he said there's the judgment of ourselves, and he mentions the word our own conscience. And then he says there's the judgment of God. And often we don't know the motives and we do not know the intention of the heart of individuals. And so it's very, very important that we be not so quick to judge another person because we don't know the motives and we don't know the intentions. Yes, the Bible says that we are to be fruit inspectors and we're to be fruit inspectors over a period of time because a crop doesn't happen in a month or two. Usually it takes a while. But bottom line... The Lord himself only knows the heart of a person, and this is especially true of anyone who calls himself or is considered a spiritual leader. Now, more review. In verses 6 through 13 of chapter 4, Paul gets more specific, and he says that we're never ever, the principle is, is that the Corinthians were comparing their spiritual leader. One said, I like Apollos. The other says, I like Cephas. The other says, no, I'm an Apostle Paul fan. And the context is, is that Paul said this is something that should never take place. We're not to compare our spiritual leaders like you would compare different features of an automobile. This pastor over here has an automatic transmission compared to this guy over here who has a standard uh, transmission. And this guy over here, he's got, uh, he's got a CD player. But no, this guy over here, he's, he's only got an AM and FM radio. The moment that we begin to compare our spiritual leaders, there's always a loser in that comparison. And these people took it to the nth degree, and they were rallying people. They were rallying people to their causes and to their spiritual leaders. And Paul says, don't do this. Don't take pride in comparing one spiritual leader over another. Now, why did the Corinthian church have this so-called prideful attitude? Why did they compare their spiritual leaders? Why was there a lack of appreciation for their spiritual leaders? Well, in chapter 4, verse 17, Paul indicates that it wasn't intentional. It wasn't intentional. He said, notice in verse 17, he says, I'm sending Timothy to you. I'm sending Timothy to you to remind you the way of Jesus. Now, you see, they had forgotten. They had forgotten the way of Jesus. And, uh, and they had forgotten a number of things. Well, what did they forget? Well, look at verses 7 and 8 with me. They need to be reminded that everything they possessed, spiritually speaking, came through God's grace working through spiritual leaders. Everything they have, everything they possess came through God's grace working through spiritual leaders. 
down through church history to the present. Um, then in verses 9 through 13, we also read that they were mistreating their spiritual leaders because they had forgotten the hardships of ministry. Look at verses 9 through 13 there, and there's a whole list. Paul says, he went hungry, he went thirsty, he, he, he literally became garbage, he became slandered, he became dung. Elsewhere he says that he was stoned for the faith, he was beaten, and he was whipped, and he was shipwrecked, and he experienced all these things because of full-time ministry. And I said last week, and I'll say again, admittedly, here in the United States, ministers do not face these kind of atrocities that the Apostle Paul talks about. They do in third world countries, but not here in the United States. But many, even in the United States, still face hardships and trials than the average, a typical uh, layperson doesn't understand. And I mentioned last week it would be like a pastor trying to imagine what a police officer goes through or what an EMT person goes through in a major city having to go from one crisis to another. You just cannot relate. Some people say, well, I understand. I understand what's happening. No, you don't. You don't understand unless you walk a mile, so to speak, in another person's shoes. You just don't understand what's happening in spiritual leaders' lives today. A few years ago, Neil Wiseman, who at that time was the Nazarene Dean of the Nazarene Bible College, and H.B. London, who was the Vice President of Focus on the Family, they wrote a book entitled, Pastors at Risk. And they asked the question, why is ministry so tough today? Hasn't it always been tough? That's the question. And this is what they write in their book. Pastoring, any full-time ministry, is harder than ever before, and then they go on and list 12 hazards. And I don't have time to share all of them with you this morning. But I want to talk about a few of these hazards with you. And uh, I want to talk about four or five. And I've listed these out here. And we're going to go through this very, very briefly. And then we're going to go on to the second part of this particular message in verses 7 through 12. But hazard number one that they listed in this particular book, Pastors at Risk, is walk-on-water syndrome. Walk-on-water syndrome. Now, people expect, even pastors themselves at times, expect that they can meet everyone's needs. They can meet everyone's needs. But Peter left a dazzling warning, anyone who tries to walk on water drowns, or at least swallows large amounts of water. Hazard number two that they identified, and this is church member Migration, church member migration. The history of the church has never seen a member migration like today. Like wild geese, people are, are on the move, going often from one church to another church. And unfortunately, myself included, pastors take this personally. When it, in essence, doesn't really, nine times out of ten, has nothing to do with the pastor, but they often do take it personally. And I don't understand that, and I, don't, I can't figure it all out, but we do take it personally at times. Hazard number three, according to this book, is consumer mentality. Now, people want programs, and people want choices, like McDonald's at their church. They don't want, they don't want to go to church uh, often to, to, re- to, uh, to give, but they want to receive. And so, will anybody teach Sunday school or work in the nursery? Thank the Lord, we have nursery workers. 
But if you don't have these programs, often people are off to someplace else. And number four is uh, what they call suffocating expectations. Suffocating expectations. Did you know that expectations are going up while commitments are going down? And the more needy that our world and society becomes, the more expectations that we put on our leaders. Hazard number five is dysfunctional people. And they write this. The breakdown of the American home and family has greatly comp complicated pastoral care. A pastor serving in his first church wrote these words. I spend an enormous amount of time rescuing people from their sins sexual problems of every kind, addictions to drug and alcohol, addictions to laziness, addictions to work, addictions to anorexia, anger and rage, low self-esteem, and hopelessness. It was interesting because last Sunday we had a pastor here, a former pastor, and I met him out the back door out here. We had a nice conversation. He said something to the effect, well, I wish more people would hear what you're talking about. Because I was one of those guys that stepped out of ministry after a number of years in the pastor. I met a man a number of years ago who had been a pastor half of his life, 25 plus years at that time, and then he stepped out of ministry. And this is what he said to me in my paraphrase. Having been a pastor, having been a pastor, and now a layperson, my perspective is totally different. Every chance I get, I encourage my pastor. I lift him up like those fellows that lifted up the arms of Moses because I know that for every encouragement, every compliment I give my pastor, there are ten others in line giving discouragement. Encourage. 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 Okay, let's go on. I want to spend the remaining amount of our time looking at the other side of the coin, how pastors are to treat lay people, because it's a real problem in our world today. If you don't understand it, and if you don't realize it, it's a real problem. Pastoral abuses are on the rise from years ago, Jim Jones type of persona, to Jim Bakers, to the Jimmy Swagger, the Telvin preachers, to the Teg Haggards, to uh, local and regional pastors who are having moral failure right and left and who are some, some sort of moral decline. I don't understand it all. I don't understand it happens, but it happens. And Paul is writing to the Corinthian church to remind them of a number of things how to get along with others, how to treat their spiritual leaders. And it's as though someone on the other side of the conversation says, but wait just a second, Paul. Wait just a second. Uh, are you trying to shame us? Are you using sarcasm? Are you putting us down? Are you, are you, are you misunderstanding what's happening and what's going on here? Look at chapter 4, verse 14 with me. He, he says, in, in answer to this, he says, I'm not writing this to shame you, but I'm writing this to warn you as my 
dear children. Now, under the heading, the father, father in the faith, this is the first thing that I believe that the Apostle Paul really he is, he's in here on. Spiritual leaders, any spiritual leader, be it a pastor, be it a missionary, be it an evangelist, be it a spiritual leader in the home, a parent, a husband, whatever it may be, the first thing that spiritual leaders are not called to do is to shame people. We're not called to shame people. We're not called to shame people. The Greek word is interesting because it is the word intrapone, and it's translated, Paul is saying, I, I'm not writing this to put you down. I'm not writing this to mock you. I'm not writing this to publicly disgrace you, to put, you, uh, to put a stain on your reputation. I'm not writing this just to scold you needlessly, without rhyme or reason, just to put you in your place, someplace. We all know as parents, right, that there's a difference between punishment and discipline. We understand that, right? Anybody can punish a child. Anybody can yell. Anybody can scream. Anybody can lose their temper. Right? Anybody can do that. But a parent that disciplines, they say, here's the instruction. Here's what I want you to do. When a pastor preaches from God's Word, he says, here is the ceiling. Here's the floor. Here's what we want to shoot for. The pastor says, if he's a good pastor, says, I haven't reached it. But like you, I'm striving for it. But you have to shoot for the ceiling. You have to preach the whole counsel of God. You have to say, this is God's Word. This is God's truth. That's decoration. And, and that's prophetic. And that's teaching. And that's preaching. Um, and, and so Paul says, I wrote to you. My motive is not to shame you, but to warn you. You see, again, there's nothing wrong with speaking the truth in love. To say, this is what God wants for all of us. This is God's will for us in our lives. The Bible says in the book of Proverbs, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. The context a good friend, a, a, excuse me, a person that's not really a friend, a person that does not really care for you, will pat you in the back and will whisper in your ear, you're great, you're wonderful, you're doing things great, when you're not. But a good friend will come to you and with tenderness and compassion will say, hey, you're heading down the wrong pathway, you're doing something wrong in your life, and I love you so much and I'm concerned about you, and I'm willing to wound you with the truth. I think the same thing applies when the pastor preaches through the Word of God and preaches the counsel of God's whole Word. That there are times where it, it, it's, like, it, it's like salt in a wound. At times it hurts and, and, and there's wounding that occurs because that's part of, the, part of being a, a father figure, so to speak, a, a spiritual leader, a, did you know that shame is also produced when we, when we go beyond truth-telling and try to force a person through manipulation, through human guilt, through blame, through uh, authority, through power to change? Our job as 
spouses. Our job, ultimately, as parents, is to, is to teach, is to model, is to share, but never ever to manipulate, never ever to use political maneuvers to manipulate people into coming over to our side, so to speak. It's the Holy Spirit's job to convict people of their sins and to convince them uh, that they need to change. It's not our job to be the Holy Spirit for other people. Our job is to share the truth. One more thing about shame. Did you know that shame is often produced when we rub, rub people's noses in their failures? When we rub people's noses in their failures. Now, you guys, let's say that you have a little boy, a little girl. And that little boy, a little girl, it's Bobby. Let's say it's Bobby. And you have a driveway, and it's a long driveway, and it's cement, but there's a section of that new driveway that hasn't been cemented over, and it's gravel. And it's, it's not the pea gravel stuff. It's a big, 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 uh, big stones of gravel. And so you tell Bobby, you say, Bobby, I want you to go out in that driveway and you can ride up and down on the cement part, but I don't want you to get in the gravel part. You understand? Don't ride in the gravel part because you might fall and scrape yourself all up because it's two or three inches deep and it's dangerous. So what happens? Bobby goes out there and he goes up and down the driveway and he gets in the gravel section and he falls over and scrapes himself from head to toe. And then he comes back in crying inside the house and there you are. And what's the first thing you want to do? I told you so. You should have done that. No way. Don't do that. Right? That's the first thing we want to do. Yell and tell them that they're childish, they're disobedient, scold them, shame them for their disobedience. But we don't have to do that, right? We don't have to rub their nose in their failures. Why? Why don't we have to rub their nose in their failures? Because... They already know that they're suffering and hurting because they disobeyed what you told them to do. And so, we don't shame people by rubbing their noses in their failures because they're already suffering the consequences nine times out of ten for the things that they do. Amen? So, as a pastor, we're not to shame people. The second thing I see in this particular passage of Scripture, uh, a leader should be compassionate. Should be compassionate. I want you to look at verse 14 again, again with me. Notice he says, I'm not writing this to shame you, but to warn you, as my dear children. Now Paul uses the metaphor, spiritual father. Now, he indicates, now this is important, he indicates that a spiritual father is more than a person that just provides guidance or that's a tutor or that's some sort of advisor. Paul says, I am your father in the faith. And literally the Apostle Paul was the father in the faith for many of those individuals. He had won many of those people to Christ and he was literally a father in the faith for many of those people. Now, whether or not our spiritual leader in today's world is literally a father of the faith or not. There still is a wonderful principle and an idea that is being expressed. There is universal application here. We know that Jesus in his high priestly prayer 
prayer referred to God the Father in Aramaic as Daddy. I would never want someone like they do in the Catholic Church or the Episcopal Church to call me Father Ron. I don't want anybody to call me Father Ron. But there's a principle here. And the principle is, is that you as a pastor, we as pastors, as pastor leaders, are to be like a father, a spiritual father, in the sense of being compassionate, being kind, someone that comes alongside, someone that nurtures. In fact, the Apostle Paul used the metaphor elsewhere as a shepherd who gently leads the flock, who leads the flock to green pastures, who helps protect the flock from the enemy and enemies. There was a pastor a number of years ago who wrote this. My nine-year-old daughter Jennifer was looking forward to our family's mini vacation. But when our vacation arrived, she became ill and a long-anticipated day at SeaWorld was replaced by an all-night series of CAT scans, x-rays, and blood work at the hospital. As morning approached, the doctors told my exhausted little girl that she would need to have one more painful test, a spinal tap. The procedure would be painful, they said. The doctor then asked me if I planned to stay in the room. I nodded my head, knowing I couldn't leave Jennifer alone during the ordeal. The doctor gently asked Jennifer to remove all her clothing, and she looked at me with childlike modesty, as if to ask if that were all right. And and then they had her curl up into a tiny ball. I buried my face in hers and hugged her when the needle went in, and Jennifer cried. As the searing pain increased, she sobbed repeatedly, Daddy, Daddy, Daddy! Her voice becoming more earnest with each word. It was as if she was saying, Oh, Daddy, this hurts so, so bad. Please, can't you do something? And in response, he writes, My tears mingled with hers. My heart was broken because I loved her. And she was going through the most agonizing experience of her life. And I could hardly stand it. Compassion. Mercy. As a father, even a spiritual father, spiritually speaking. A heart of love for others. The last thing that I see in this particular section of scripture. A spiritual leader is to train others to do the work of ministry. A spiritual leader is to train others to do the work of ministry. Look at verse 17 again with me. For this reason, I am sending to you Timothy. Notice, Timothy. What does he say about Timothy? My son whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. I'm sending Timothy to you as my son who is faithful in the Lord. Pastors, I skipped over one. I'll go back to the one I skipped. This is number four, but I skipped number three. Pastors are to equip and mature the saints according to Ephesians chapter four, 
for the work of ministry. Not to do all the ministry themselves, but to disciple and equip others to do the work of ministry. I minister to others because I'm a Christian. But my job as a pastor is to give ministry away. Does that make sense? Here his son is in the faith. Paul says, I'm not going to come to you. I'm going to send Timothy to you. I skipped over number three accidentally here, but spiritual leaders are to imitate the life of Christ. They're to imitate the life of Christ in who they are to and how they conduct themselves. Verse 16, Paul says, imitate me. Well, who was Apostle Paul imitating? Verse 17, Jesus. We're to imitate the person of Jesus Christ, to be conformed to his image, the image of Jesus Christ. As spiritual leaders, we're not to imitate great business leaders necessarily, or civic leaders, or sports leaders, or government leaders. We're to imitate Jesus, to be conformed to his image. I begin earlier by saying the Apostle Paul had great confidence in the church, great confidence in the Corinthian church, that they would be able to work out the problems and the difficulties they found with other people and among themselves. And on one, more than one occasion, the Apostle Paul said, persevere, run this race, run this race of perseverance, persevere, persevere. Persevere. Don't quit. When the conflict comes, don't throw in the towel. Persevere. When the conflict comes between your spouse and yourself, don't throw in the towel. Don't use that D word. Persevere. When the conflict comes between you and an employee or an employer, persevere. Don't just go to greener pastures. Don't just look for another job right away. Persevere. If you have a conflict with your child or a conflict with the next-door neighbor, don't just write them off. Persevere in the relationship with your child or with that next-door neighbor. If you have a conflict with the person in the church, don't just write them off. Say there's some sort of odd, some oddball, oddest person, and I'm just going to go in my corner, and they're going in their corner. Persevere. You remember what happened in 1968. <laughs> some of you weren't even born in 1968. How can you remember but those of us who were alive before 1968, and it's still a story that's widely talked about. It's incredible when you think about it. But in 1968, there was a marathon runner from Tanzania. They never had one before that. And his name was John Michael, uh, John Stephen Akawera. And he was, he was sent to the Mexico City Olympics to run in a marathon race. And about halfway through, he fell and injured his knee and ankle severely, really badly. By 7 p.m., a runner from Ethiopia had already made it in and won the race. And all the other competitors had finished and had been cared for. Just a few thousand spectators were left in that stadium 
when a police siren at the gate caught their attention. Lifting through the gate came number 36, John Stephen Aquera. His leg bandaged, blood all over the bandage, limping, could barely stay upright. I still remember that scene as a kid. And those present begin to cheer and stand up the few thousand that were left in the stadium as this courageous man limped around and limped around and limped around, barely able to stand up, and he made that final lap. Later, a newspaper reporter asked him the question that was on everyone's mind. Why did you continue the race after you were so badly injured? Why did you continue to race? No one would have thought twice about it. And John Stephen Akawera replied, My country, my country did not send me 7,000 miles to begin a race. They sent me to finish it. You understand what it says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1? Let us run this race with perseverance. The race marked out for us. Don't quit. Don't quit on the church. On your marriage on your kids, on all those relationships. Let's bow our heads and let's pray together.